This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about what happened in Tulsa in 1921. Just a few months ago, we learned it was not a race riot. Instead, it was a massacre, probably the deadliest instance of racial violence in the country's history. And now we're learning more about what happened there and how that history was hidden, covered up by a conspiracy of silence. That's because there's a new book out about that history, it's called The Groundbreaking, written by Scott Ellsworth. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for several decades. His work on the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, good to talk to you, John. For starters here, remind us briefly about what happened in Tulsa in 1921. At, at the time, Tulsa was the oil capital of America. It had a flourishing black community centered around something they called Black Wall Street. How come Black Wall Street was in Tulsa? <laughs> well, Tulsa was a boom town because of the oil industry, as you mentioned. Uh, the population had grown dramatically uh, in the 10 years before 1921, both white and black people moving into Tulsa. There were jobs, there was money, there were institutions. The black community there was uh, kind of unique in that it was really uh, almost self-sufficient. Uh, Greenwood, the African-American uh, community or neighborhood, had all sorts of institutions. It had numerous shops, it had professional services, lawyers, doctors, etc. two newspapers, it had big hotels restaurants, libraries, you name it, for black people. It was a segregated town, and partly because the downtown shops didn't want to serve black people, they created their own community, which was controlled by uh, African-Americans. Uh, most of the people living there were not affluent by any means, but nonetheless, there was a substantial middle class, and it was a thriving part of a boom city. 
And how many black people were killed in Tulsa in that massacre? Nobody knows exactly how many people were killed. Uh, the best estimates today run between 100 and 300 people. One of the things I point out is, as you know, I reviewed this book in the current issue of the London Review of Books by Scott Ellsworth. And, um, you know, uh, he points out that they are searching for mass graves now in uh, various parts of Tulsa, that many of the victims of that massacre were just buried in unknown places, and they're trying to reconstruct that. So the number who actually died is still um, to be determined. And do we know how many homes were destroyed or how many people lost their homes? Yeah, something like 1,500 buildings were destroyed by fire, by mob attack, looting. The, the, the population of, of Greenwood was around 10,000 at that time, and I think a majority of them found themselves homeless after this massive uh, invasion of Greenwood by armed white uh, supremacists uh, who then ran amok and burned things down and shot people in the street, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It devastated that community for a long, long time. And the big puzzle to lots of us is why did this happen in Tulsa when nothing like it happened in Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina? Why did it happen in Oklahoma, which had not been a slave state, which had not been part of the Confederacy. Oklahoma is a funny state uh, in terms of its history. As you know, it was Indian territory. That's what it was called before it became a state in the Union in 1907. There was an indigenous native population. Thousands of Indians from the East Coast were moved there in the 1830s as part of the Trail of Tears. Later, Western Indians were moved there by the federal government. Uh, and a lot of black people moved there, too, particularly in this period when Jim Crow was being fastened upon the South. Uh, Oklahoma, for complicated reasons, there was land available in uh, Oklahoma. A lot of it was Native American land, which the government was making available to uh, white and sometimes black settlers. So you had a situation where actually black people were thriving in Tulsa. And this was one of the reasons for resentment against them, that the local whites uh, didn't like the fact that the black community was so uh, prosperous and successful. Uh, but also there was deep racism. They, uh, there were laws about segregation. Oklahoma is the only state that was not part of the Confederacy that moved to disenfranchise black voters uh, in the period of the early uh, 20th century. So there was racial tension. There was a kind of strange racial combination of Native Americans, Black Americans, White Americans living uh, in Oklahoma anyway. And also, uh, Ellsworth in his book said that this kind of boomtown atmosphere uh, didn't generate a lot of respect for law and order, let's put it that way. And the white people of Tulsa did everything they could to bury this history and keep it hidden, and they succeeded for almost 100 years. How did they do it? There was a concerted effort to just suppress the, the knowledge, the memory of this massive uh, massacre. It's hard to do that with a, an event of such magnitude, but they uh, destroyed public records. If you go to do research, the records of the National Guard, which had been uh, taking place there, uh, the records of local newspapers, there were actually articles cut out of local newspapers uh, in the University of Tulsa Library, so no one would ever see these things. The sheriff ordered his men to, after the riot, to go around and remove photographs that might have been taken by uh, photography shops of the devastation. 
uh, in Greenwood in Tulsa. Um, and it was very clear you weren't supposed to mention this in school. Teachers were reprimanded if they made any reference to the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, so there was this concerted effort to literally suppress historical memory. That raises the question of why. Why did the whites in Tulsa want to keep this massacre a secret? In, in contrast to the practice of whites throughout the Deep South who made lynchings of black men public events, spectacles that often had hundreds of white people watching that were recorded in photographs, which were then widely distributed afterwards. White people in the Deep South wanted everyone to know that the racial order there was enforced by violence. Why do you think whites in Tulsa wanted to keep their history secret? That's a very good question. I think given that this was an oil center, that meant that it was a city that had connections all over the country and indeed all over the world. It was part of a you know much larger uh, system of economics and trade. And I think the city fathers, so to speak, the all white city government just didn't think this would be good for the image of Tulsa. Businessmen in Tulsa were, were dealing with business people all over the world and certainly all over the United States via the oil industry. And uh, I think they just felt this was not the image they wanted their city to have, a place of you know, extreme racist violence. You're right. There are many places where lynchings were public spectacles in order to intimidate the black population. But here, I think they were more concerned with the reputation of the city. And there's an even bigger surprise. Uh, you say that black people in Tulsa also kept the secret of what happened to them in 1921. Why yeah, was Ellsworth, that? Ellsworth makes that point. I think, uh, you know, they may have, we don't know why. I mean, they talked about it in their homes. Black people knew this had happened, but there was nothing public said or, or done about it for a long, long time. And I think they may have felt that if you started talking about it, you'd just stimulate more racial violence. He doesn't quite explain why uh, the black community was pretty silent. He does show that by another generation, by the late 1960s, there were now younger blacks who began really investigating this. So the fact that both whites and blacks wanted to keep this history secret for decades poses huge problems for historians like you and me. You say this began to be broken in the 60s. How did historians then and now with this historian Scott Ellsworth uncover these secrets? First of all, black survivors were willing to talk to investigators. Ellsworth himself grew up in Tulsa. He first heard about this in high school. and he couldn't He's white. It. Is that right? Ellsworth he's is white. white. Yes, he's a white writer. He grew up, went to all white schools in Tulsa. As a kind of a working on a, like a term paper in high school, he began running across old little articles here and there about a race war that had taken place in Tulsa. He began investigating it, but he, it was very difficult. But I, you have to give him credit. He wrote the first significant history of the Tulsa massacre, which appeared in the uh, early 1980s. He relied on, you know, there was some documentation available. Uh, the people who were trying to suppress this forgot that newspapers also exist on microfilm. So even though <laughs> they cut the articles out of the actual copies of the paper in the library, somebody had microfilmed the papers before that was happen had happened. So you could find information. Uh, he gives credit to survivors. He gives credit to a black woman who wrote a short pamphlet in the 1920s about what happened in Tulsa. So you know, it wasn't absolutely 100% suppressed, but within Tulsa, you were just not supposed to mention this at all. 
And what happened to Black Tulsa after 1921? Well, as we said, you know, a tremendous amount of, apart from the loss of life, a tremendous amount of property and wealth was destroyed, uh, which set the Black community back for a long, long time and uh, destroyed the assets of many families. Greenwood began to recuperate, though, in the 1940s. Uh, it was, again, a, a commercial district with all sorts of shops and everything. It still exists today, although in a in much attenuated form, much smaller. But the Black community of Tulsa has never, I think, really regained the, the stature, the standing, and the wealth that it had before the Tulsa massacre. And you have this astounding statistic about Black doctors in Tulsa then and now. There were more, apparently there were more Black doctors in Tulsa in 1921 than there are Black doctors in Tulsa today, when the city is far bigger, of course, than it was back then. This is one of the ironies of racial segregation, as you know. The very fact that Black people were not allowed to be served in restaurants, in hotels, in shops downtown, uh, forced them to create their own institutions. It, it opened the door to entrepreneurs who would the, the biggest Black-owned hotel in the country was in Tulsa because the downtown hotels would not allow Black people, uh, black people in. The downtown clothing shops would not allow a Black person to try on clothing if they wanted to buy it. Uh, you know, so that's why this was a thriving community. And that's really one of the main motivations, in a way, for the massacre, that whites just resented the fact that Blacks were being so successful in Tulsa, and that Greenwood occupied very valuable real estate right near the center of Tulsa. And there were white people who thought, you know, whites ought to own that land, not black people. So the very success of the black population made them vulnerable to this kind of assault. The way that segregation contributed to the creation of a black elite is hardly unique to Tulsa. Of course, it happened throughout the segregated South. But what was unique in Tulsa was that when a whites organized to lynch a young black man accused of attacking a young white woman, black veterans of World War I armed marched on the jail to try to prevent that. That's, that was really the stimulus for these huge white mobs gathering. And that is what didn't happen in Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina. Yeah, that's right. Of course, this was right after the end of World War I. Many black soldiers had fought in World War I. They were quite accustomed to using weaponry. And yes, black veterans marched twice that evening before the massacre to the city jail where this young, young black teenager accused of assaulting a, a white young white woman was being marched. They wanted to prevent a lynching. In fact, a newspaper uh, did publish an article that day, so-and-so to be lynched tonight. Oh. It was public information. They stopped that. There was no lynching that night, but uh, at one of these confrontations, some shots rang out. Nobody knows who fired them. The sheriff began distributing arms to whites who were gathered. And the next day, a large, large set of mobs uh, coordinating uh, them armed of white people uh, assaulted the black community of Tulsa and burned it to the ground. So even though there were black soldiers ready to defend their community, there weren't enough of them. They were far outnumbered by the armed uh, whites who took part. Also, they were outgunned. The National Guard set up a machine gun, which began firing into Greenwood <laughs> rather than trying to keep, uh, you know, keep the law and order. 
a local oil company apparently let the mob use an airplane and they dropped incendiary devices onto uh, the Greenwood neighborhood. Uh, so this was a all this was a riot of individuals, of private people, of policemen, of national guardsmen, uh, and the uh, the black defenders were just uh, overwhelmed, so to speak, by the forces attacking them. And were black people ever compensated for the destruction of their homes and their businesses? Well, you know, in the 1990s, the uh, legislature of Oklahoma finally set up a commission to investigate the Tulsa riot. And that commission, uh, for which Ellsworth himself and the historian John O. Franklin, a black historian who grew up in Tulsa, uh, that commission recommended what you might call reparations. There was still some elderly survivors around. This is 80 years, maybe, or since the, uh, since the massacre. And they recommended public compensation to these people who, had, who were still alive, but also a more general kind of reparations like college scholarships for black young people coming out of uh, Tulsa at that point as a kind of way of paying back for all the destruction. Nothing was ever done along those lines. The legislature, the local authorities in Tulsa did not believe in reparations of any kind. And uh, indeed, insurance companies back in 1921 refused to pay uh, holders of policies for the loss of their property. They said riots are not covered by our uh, property insurance uh, uh, policies. This is one of the examples of why the racial gap in family assets is so wide in this country. Uh, I think today the median white family has about 10 times the amount of family wealth as the median black family, $80,000 to $8,000. Uh, $8,000 isn't much as your total family wealth. Uh, because, uh, you know, many black people have saw their the wealth they accumulated destroyed, not just in Tulsa, but in many other places. Uh, and, uh, you know, wealth is accumulated over the generations of an event like the Tulsa Rip Massacre sets back an entire uh, community of people for a long, long time. They've got to start from scratch again to try to build up family wealth. Uh, and so they certainly deserved reparations of some kind given the participation of the police and the National Guard in the rioting itself, but none was ever paid. And I know that uh, Oklahoma today is a voted for Trump. Now that the history of the race massacre of 1921 has been uncovered, and now we have observed the 100th anniversary, is this being introduced in the history courses in the public schools there? Uh, for the moment, it is. Yes, uh, they are teaching about it 100 years later. They're, 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 it's now a public thing. I mean, there is a museum uh, about Greenwood in, uh, in Tulsa. Uh, there's a big mural uh, painted on the side of an of a, uh, elevated highway about it. You can go online and look and on Amazon and find books and souvenirs and other things related to the Tulsa massacre. And it is being taught in schools. The problem is that in Oklahoma, as in a number of other Republican-controlled states, laws are being passed to ban the teaching of what they call critical race theory. But really what they're trying to ban is teaching about racism altogether. Most of the legislators have no idea what critical race theory is, but they don't want, they have banned the teaching of the idea that 
racism is endemic in American society or anything like that. So, uh, yes, they are teaching the massacre now, but the new laws may make it more and more difficult to do it. It's pretty difficult to teach about the Tulsa race massacre and not mention racism. Eric Foner wrote about Tulsa for the new issue of the London Review of Books. Thank you, Eric. This was great. Great to talk to you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.